Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is Elder Callister. Um, you're all familiar with Elder Callister from his church service, but we're going to particularly talk about his book that my dear wife, who's really good at finding the latest great books from Mormon authors, um, wrote a case for the Book of Mormon. I've read this book, and it just reaffirms to me the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon and its role in our restored church. And I recognize that many of my listeners are younger and perhaps um, working through their faith and working to stay in the church or other local leaders that are helping our younger members um, work through faith and complicated issues. And I look to the Book of Mormon as this great anchor and a mentor to me is Elder Callister that I'm meeting for the first time in his home and just honored that he would be in the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Elder Callister. Thank you very much, Richard. Um, well, you just, there's so many places we could start, but let's just start with the book, because I want to focus on the book and get right to the book. Um, what caused you to write the book, and what's your purpose in writing the book? I think there were a couple causes. One is, uh, I've always loved the Book of Mormon. I felt that it was the greatest evidence that we had of the truth of this church, independent of the Spirit. And I was aware that there were a number of uh, critics who had attacked the Book of Mormon. And I wanted to respond to some of their criticisms in what I hope was a, a fair but uh, uh, compelling way. And also raise some questions that the uh, critics don't like to answer about the Book of Mormon. So lots of times we're on the defense just trying to answer their questions. And, the, and to me, if you want the truth, we have the right to take the offense and have them try and answer some very difficult questions for them that are great evidences of the Book of Mormon. So I was hoping this could all come together in this book entitled The Case for the Book of Mormon. And did you do this in your latest church assignment? And will you share with our listeners what that was? My latest church assignment was the uh, Sunday School General President of the church. And... Uh, I wrote it basically over a concentrated time of two years while I was serving in that capacity, but many ideas and thoughts I had just collected over the, the previous 20, 30, 40 years. So it was a culmination of all of that, that work and those ideas. And I haven't read all of your conference talks, but I'm, I'm remembering one in particular that was very focused on the Book of Mormon. Has that been a theme of, of your ministry and your conference talks and your service and area presencies, and even your own mission? Or is this, has this been more of a focus theme later in your ministry? Well, I would say that uh, the Atonement and the Book of Mormon have been two issues on which I have tried to focus a lot of my messages. That's, that's helpful. Um, will you give our listeners who haven't read the book um, just an overview, because it's organized in a few sections. Well, the first half of the book basically responds to arguments made by the critics. Some of these arguments might be that uh, the Book of Mormon has anachronisms, you know, things or people that are out of place, out of date, or uh, that it's language is uh, plagiarized from other books or that somebody else wrote the Book of Mormon. Certainly Joseph Smith could, uh, 
or that uh, he copied it from other people and then all of a sudden became a creative genius. The arguments run all over the board. If one doesn't work, they try another one. That's kind of the first half, responding to those arguments. The second half is to say, all right, we've responded to your questions. Now, here are some questions for you. How did Joseph Smith write this eloquent language that, uh, you know, you could probably go through the Book of Mormon and have a hundred quotes that you'd put on your refrigerator door? And I've often thought to myself, if I had two or three quotes that my children remembered and savored, that would be very satisfactory to me. And here's Joseph Smith, 23 years of age, trying to eke out a living on the frontier, and he comes up with these hundred-plus incredible quotes that inspire us. Or why did these 11 witnesses stick with Joseph Smith to the very end, even when they were threatened with their lives? Peer pressure was put upon them. They left the church, some of them. Why did they stick with him to the very end? And I didn't realize that there's about 200 statements by these witnesses that are, uh, have been recorded that uh, verify they were true to their testimonies to the very end. Or to me, one of the most incredible evidences is the doctrine found in this book. Nowhere can you find an explanation of the atonement as well as you can find it in the Book of Mormon. And many other doctrines that have been lost in Christianity or misunderstood have now been clarified or restored in the Book of Mormon. And then another question is, is why is it that so many people who have received a testimony of the Bible, have used that very same way to gain a testimony of the Book of Mormon by the Holy Ghost. So the second half of the book is to ask some of these questions as to uh, how did we get this divine eloquence? How did we get this doctrine? How did we get all these witnesses? And what is the Spirit confirmed? So, so many of this book is true if it's not. Thank you. That's uh, a helpful overview for the podcast and of the book. And I think we'll just take that framework, our listeners, and kind of go through the sections that Elder Callister outlined. One of, as I read um, this book, and I'm so grateful for my wife, I think I would have gotten to it anyway, but sometimes our wives seem to know what us husbands need to read. And, and she's given this book to our children also, was sort of talking about this idea of match it. B.H. Roberts would sometimes say to the crit critics, match it, match it. Or I say with hand on lips, remain silent when his name is spoken. So just talk about that a little bit. If you were asked at that age to do what he did, why is that so unmatchable? Well, first of all, I uh, might say that the critics have uh, indicated that uh, finally their, their current argument is that Joseph Smith was a creative genius. And, uh, and that's really helpful. So all the other arguments you've gone through in the book have sort of come and gone. And I was going to ask you, what is sort of the latest <laughs> main yeah, the, argument? I'd say all the arguments, someone else wrote it, that uh, he uh, totally plagiarized it, that he was uh, mentally unstable. All of those have gone by the wayside. And the current argument is that Joseph Smith was a creative genius and 
there were a few things that he copied, either the ideas or the stories. And with that combination, he was able to write it. Well, my response is, if that's really true, just one of you genius critics who's 23 years of age or find someone who's 23, invite them in 65 days to write a book 530 pages long that's a narrative and has the doctrine that this book has. And rather than just saying somebody could have done it, let's see somebody do it. I've never seen somebody do it, and we've had over 100 years of people making this argument. And then uh, when I finished writing this book, my secretary just happened to ask me a question. She said, do you know how many drafts you've had? I said, no, I don't. She said, you've had 73 drafts. And I thought to myself, 73 drafts, two concentrated years plus 30 to 40 years of collecting ideas. And Joseph Smith, in 65 days, translates this book, one draft, no notes in front of him, minor grammatical corrections. And I think to myself, there's no way in the world he could have done it at age 23. And uh, to me, that is one of the greatest witnesses. I think it was Hank Smith who said, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an opinion. And if you've written a book, and this book that I have was, you know, half the length of the Book of Mormon, doesn't contain anywhere the near the depth of doctrine of the Book of Mormon, and uh, yet it took me two years and multiple readers to assist me and help me. From my experience, no one can tell me that Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon. That was really powerful me to me as I read that, and as you're testifying right now, I feel just a great spirit <laughs> as you talk about this, and I hope our listeners um, some of the, do you want to talk about the number of new names? That was interesting to me in the book. I never realized that you, you actually added up um, the number of names. Well, I don't think I added up the number of names. Honestly, I so, think I researched that. You researched I give that. thanks to somebody. That's just fine. Who did. But is this the new names of the Savior or just the new names? Well, just of, the names of the, um, you must invent about 280 new names of people and places. I guess it's people and places. Yes. Um, that will stand up under scrutiny through the years. That's just in fascinating. Addition, in addition to all those names, I think there was over 100 names for the Savior. So it's remarkable when you think of the extensiveness of this book in terms of new names, places, titles for the Savior. It's totally overwhelming for any single author to do that. And, and one of the things I should have mentioned about his writing this is that his wife mentioned that when he dictated, and they would then go to lunch or whatever, and they would come back, that he would never ask her, where was I? Because he wasn't authoring this book, he was translating it by way of revelation. And people may not understand the significance of that, but as an attorney, I dictated to my secretary for 34 years, almost every day. 
And when a phone call would come or an interruption, I would almost always turn to her and I would say, where was I? Where was I? Because I was writing or dictating my own words. He wasn't. He was translating the word of God and the revelation was being given to him. So there are multiple evidences that this was not copied. This was not written. This was a translation. Other points you'd love to bring up in a summary of podcasts like this, obviously the best thing is for people to read the book or even read the Book of Mormon, and um, that as part of um, disputing prior claims that you'd like to address, Elder Gallister. Well, uh, we had a history of claims that there were anachronisms in the Book of Mormon. The first one was probably that... Uh, in fact, it was ludicrous to think that they wrote on gold plates, that they wrote on metal plates. Everybody knew that they wrote on papyrus or parchment. And, and then, of course, they started to find metal plates, many metal plates that were ancient records written during the same time as the Book of Mormon. And it's interesting that the critics kind of poo-poo that argument and say, well, now that's an old argument, but it's one they made with uh, force and fury for some time. And then you can see the pattern because the next argument was, well, there was no cement. It was ludicrous to think they were technologically savvy enough to make cement in that day and age until they found cement. And uh, Teotihuacan and other places we have, you know, the cement pyramids, cement drain pipes, cement houses, just like spoken of in the Book of Mormon. And now they don't want to talk about that one anymore, but that was a, an argument seriously made. And then for many years, it was that Alma was uh, a woman's name, and they'd really caught Joseph Smith this time. How ridiculous. He made it a male name. And my wife's mother's name is Alma. Is Alma. So that's a, you're right. It's a, it's a more, con it, go ahead. Well, so they made the argument that it was in uh, <clears throat> Latin and I think Hebrew, a female name, not a male name. Joseph Smith had just made a mistake. And then I think it was about 1961 when uh, in an archaeological dig in Israel, they found a deed. And it was signed uh, during the second century, I think, A.D., during Book of Mormon times. And it was signed by uh, Judah, <clears throat> I think it was Judah ben, excuse me, Ju Alma ben Judah, which means Alma, the son of Judah. And all of a sudden, you didn't hear the critics anymore talking about this. And the next one was domesticated barley. They just didn't have that in Book of Mormon times. In fact, one institute student who was getting his PhD in horticulture went to his institute teacher and said in the 1970s, I just know there was no barley in the Book of Mormon times. I, you know, I'm getting my PhD in horticulture. I'm just going to have to leave the church. Well, the next decade, what do they find but domesticated barley and Hohokam Indian sites in Arizona, other U.S. states, in Mexico, during the same time frame as the Book of Mormon. And then they laughed for a while at the phrase, and it came to pass. They had a lot of fun with that one. I think it appears 1,400 times in the Book of Mormon, but they failed to mention that it actually appears 1,100 
plus times in the Bible. Actually, you read the phrase, and it came to pass about 400 times because the translators took the liberty to take the same Hebrew word but translated and or something else so they wouldn't be repetitious. In fact, I think Genesis 39 uses the phrase, and it came to pass eight or nine times. You think, how did Joseph Smith pick up on all these little things? How did he know there was metal plates? How did he know there was cement? How did he know Alma was a male name? How did he know that domesticated barley was being used during Book of Mormon time? Then and it came to pass was a commonly used Hebrew phrase. He must have been just the luckiest guy in the entire world because these weren't just lucky guesses. These were contrary to the asserted scientific uh, academic arguments of the time. So to me, that is one of the great arguments that we have that the Book of Mormon archaeologically is going to be favored by time. Now, the critics had their new list of anachronisms now, and that includes you know, steel and horses and certain other things. But what they failed to tell you, and this is what I include in what I call uh, a half-truth. A half-truth, when told us the full truth, is an untruth. And they mention these things that haven't been found, but what they never tell you the rest of the story is, what percentage of the archaeological finds for ancient America have been unearthed? And the non-church archaeologists will tell you that it's a fraction, a fraction of 1%. And you can imagine, I put this in the book, and suppose that someone surveyed 1% of the geography of the United States, 1%. And then they told you, Richard, I've surveyed 1%, and I can tell you now that there are no Everglades in the United States. There are no mountains above 10,000 feet in the U.S. There's no redwood forests in the U.S. There's no Great Lakes in the U.S. There's no gold mines in the U.S. I can tell you that with certainty because I didn't find it in my 1% survey, what would you say? That's a, a conclusion you shouldn't make. <laughs> it's ridiculous. That would be the math side of my brain saying that doesn't add up. <laughs> right. And when it's put in perspective, you realize that these claimed anachronisms are based on less than 1% of the archaeological finds being unearthed. And I think time will be friendly to the Book of Mormon, just as it has been in the past with the cement and the metal plates and Alma's name and so forth. I like that phrase, Elder Callister, time will be friendly. And it has been, as you know, in our teaching here. Talk about DNA. You address DNA in the book. Well, I, I did address DNA, and I'm not an expert on DNA. So maybe the readers are better to read the quoted sources that I give. DNA is a very tricky thing. and and uh, I'm not sure that I feel qualified on my own to speak about it without quoting these, these sources. That's fine. That's fine. And I would refer people then to the book yes. and the sources in the book. I quote scientists on this, and I think they have a better understanding of DNA than I do. And I was glad you addressed it because that's one of the things that I've heard over the years is sort of the DNA, you know, um, story. And I, th I was glad you addressed that in a very faithful way. And I was, it, it was very helpful for me and very settling for me. So thank you. Thank you. Um, talk about um, anything else before we move. I want to talk next about the witnesses. 
and just some overall, anything we want to talk about um, before we go to that? I, I just think that the arguments that have been made over time as to how the Book of Mormon came forth have been so dispelled completely, fully, that there's only one argument left. And that's that Joseph Smith was a creative genius and he wrote it on his own. That's all they have left. The rest, there's no ammunition for. To make those arguments uh, is, is honestly at this point, it's not even worth responding to anymore. They've only got one. And it's interesting how they've come from full circle to Joseph Smith, or 180 degrees, I should say, from Joseph Smith was so ignorant he could not have written the book that it had to be someone else, such as Sidney Rigdon or Oliver Cowdery, so ignorant to seeing all those arguments put by the wayside to have been forced into the position that Joseph Smith was an absolute genius who wrote it. And do you think about that? Do they really believe at age 23, his wife said he couldn't write a coherent letter. He's on the edge of the frontier. And in less than 65 days, he turns out this book that is a historical and doctrinal masterpiece that has appealed to people of all ages, all academic ranks, all spiritual degrees. How did he do that? And the only way he could was because he was an instrument in God's hands who translated it. He didn't write it. Powerful. Thank you. Um, I'd love to talk about two new areas and just uh, whichever order you want to go, the witnesses. And I love that, um, that there were 200 documented statements I think you found of the, of the witnesses or just the doctrine in the Book of Mormon, the unique doctrine in the Book of Mormon. Where do you want to go next, Elder Callister? Well, let me just say a word about the witnesses. I, I, I didn't find the 200 statements. <laughs> uh, I, my thanks to Richard Anderson and David Cook, who researched all of the statements that have been made, at least all of those that have been found to date. And I was surprised at that, honestly. That was one of the things I was surprised when I read that. That's... I thought there was maybe eight or ten statements out there that we had. I didn't realize the number of interviews that David Whitmer underwent. He said, I think one day he had 15 interviews or whatever in a single day. Now, all of those aren't recorded. We don't have the benefit of all of those. But I think of the 200 statements, there's not one what I would call firsthand statement, statement made by an actual witness himself that ever denies anything he ever said as a, as a witness or testimony of the angel or the plates himself, not one. There are, I think, about eight to 10 secondhand witnesses who uh, try to cast some doubt on what the witnesses' statements were. But if you put that in perspective, that means that of the total statements that we have, they don't have one primary source witness, and maybe 5% of the total witnesses, which are secondhand, have a slightly different story. So if you were in court and you were an attorney, 
and you were uh, trying a case that had to do with a car accident and negligence, and you had 19 witnesses who saw it one way and one witness who saw it the other way, and the 19 witnesses were consistent and firsthand witnesses, absent any of the considerations, it's a hands-down case for the judge. Hands-down case. And then you look at the reliability of these witnesses. Well, did they remain true to their statements all their lives? Yes. Did they remain true even on their deathbeds when a man is most likely to tell the truth? Yes. Did they remain true even when it was not in their best interest to do so? Their life may have been threatened, or their career was being challenged, or peer pressure was being put on them. Yes, they remain true. They meet all of the standards of reliability of witnesses, and they were known in their communities of men as men of integrity. To me, I didn't realize the power of the 11 witnesses until I actually read, I think, what must be uh, all of the available accounts today, or nearly all the available accounts. Yes, sir, I didn't know that either until I read the book. I knew about the witnesses and their statements, but I didn't know that they just kept talking and that so much of that is written down and available. Is there one or two of those that are especially touching to you as you found them and read them, either new ones that you weren't aware of or original ones that just were personally kind of touching to you? Well, I'm doing this off the top of my head here, but uh, one account of David Whitmer, I believe it took place in Richmond, where he was taken to the public square and was told to either deny his testimony or he would be shot. And the gun was put to his head. And David Whitmer would not deny his testimony. Basically, he was saying, you can take my life, but I'm going to go to the other side, true to this testimony, which I know is real and I know happened. That touched me. I didn't know David Whitmer I don't, yeah. had done that. And I think Oliver Cowdery was uh, in the woods and... Uh, Honestly, I've forgotten for a moment which member of the church came to him and said, you know, they're, the mobs are after us. I really need to know. <laughs> is this true? And Oliver Cowdery says, yes, it is. And the member said, I, I believed him. I believed under those circumstances he would not tell me a lie. I didn't do justice to the account because I'm just trying to tell I, it off the top of my head. You're doing just fine. But accounts like that were uh, not only touching to me intellectually, but they were touching to me spiritually. And they just resonated with the truth of uh, somebody who under very difficult circumstances was willing to stand up for the truth no matter what happened, even their life was on the line. As you, as you reunite with these witnesses like I will someday, are there any in particular you'd love to talk to first, or would you just like to talk to all of them? I don't know if you've ever thought of that. 
Yeah, they're ones that are just kind of tender for you of, of all of those witnesses and the roads they walked. Well, I'd like to talk to Martin Harris about how he must have felt when he had to leave the group, when the angel came and he had to leave because he knew it was uh, his spirit that was preventing the angel and the answer from coming. And then how glorious it must have been for him when Joseph came with him to pray and the angel did come. I'd like to kind of hear that account from, from his words. We do have part of that account, but I'd like to hear it from him uh, face to face. I love that answer. Thank you, Elder Callister. Anything else on the witnesses before we go to the doctrine in the Book of Mormon? Just that I have an incredible respect uh, for these men who carried a substantial burden in a way. It was a great blessing, but it was also a burden and a responsibility all of their life. And I respect and honor them as, uh, as men of integrity. And then the last part of the book, I believe, is um, doctrine that was restored um, through the Book of Mormon. Share with our listeners some of that. Well, to me, uh, uh, outside the spirit, that's the greatest witness of uh, the Book of Mormon is the incredible, deep, magnificent doctrine it teaches. For example, we have some wonderful verses in the Bible on the atonement of Jesus Christ. But in the Book of Mormon, we have entire sermons on the atonement of Jesus Christ. King Benjamin. Jacob, Alma, Amulek, Moroni. And these sermons help us understand truths about the atonement that you just can't seem to get from the Bible alone. For example, it helps us understand that the Savior not only suffered for our sins, but for all of our ailments and trials and afflictions of life, and therefore, knows our plight, and is able to comfort us. The Book of Mormon makes that very, very clear. And maybe one of the greatest truths about the Book of Mormon, that the Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon helps us understand, is that the atonement not only cleanses us, but it also can perfect us. And Moroni taught that clearly in chapter 10 about come unto the Lord and be perfected in him through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it's not only a, a redemptive or cleansing power, but it's an endowing power. And those are some magnificent truths that you get in the Book of Mormon that are difficult to find anywhere in the Bible. Now, there's a lot of other doctrines that are clarified, as you would imagine, in the Book of Mormon, because we know that many plain and precious truths were lost. And uh, we know that many churches don't teach that baptism is essential anymore. The Book of Mormon makes it clear that it is essential for salvation. Many churches teach that you can be baptized by sprinkling or pouring. The Book of Mormon makes it clear it must be done by immersion. The Book of Mormon makes it clear that you don't baptize infants, you bless infants. And one of the great truths that's lost is 
that the Book of Mormon makes it clear that when we're baptized, it's not just to become a member of Christ's church. It's not just an evidence of our faith. That it's a time that we make covenants with God. And it sets out some of those great covenants that we make. It restores that truth. The Book of Mormon gives us insights into the nature of the, uh, the resurrection, the spirit world, particularly the power of the Holy Ghost in our lives and how it works on us, the light of Christ and what it is. All of these are wonderful truths, doctrinal truths and insights, some of the great analogies of faith and compared to a seed and that great sermon by Alma and uh, the great sermon that our weaknesses can become strengths because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, because of his endowing powers. We find that in ether. And uh, I, would, I would just say to suppose that Joseph Smith, who grew up in a Christian community where many of these doctrines were either not even apparent or discussed or totally lost or misunderstood, that he, as a 23-year-old boy, could come and correct them with clarity or restore them on his own would be a miracle that was impossible. He translated what God had given him. And when I read those doctrines, they seem right and true and correct and consistent, but an expansion of what's in the Bible to me. That's really powerful. And I feel a wonderful spirit here, and I'm reflecting on my life with the Book of Mormon. I'm reflecting on my mission and my service and the power of the Book of Mormon to being, being, bring people unto Christ. But your point is, is very helpful, I th that— you know, not if you go down this argument that Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon, then he not only he came up with a bunch of new doctrine. He didn't just communicate the current doctrine of the day, but as you're pointing out in the book, there's so much new doctrine that is the very doctrine we teach. Um, that's very powerful for me. I think one of the thing about the doctrine that that he uh, was just totally crosswise with the Christian world is that the Christian world believed that the fall of Adam was a tragic mistake. And the Book of Mormon makes clear that Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. If it had not been for the fall, Adam and Eve would have had no children. They would have stayed in a state of spiritual in innocence. It's like mean and neutral. You can't go anywhere in your car. And the Book of Mormon makes it clear that because they partook of that forbidden fruit, that now they were in a state of knowing good and evil. They could progress. They could become more like God. And under those conditions, they could have children, which would make sense because now they could progress also. That great truth was revealed through the prophet Joseph Smith, which we read directly in the face of what the Christian world was teaching at the time. Once we're all on the other side and you get to meet some of these Book of Mormon, it's sort of the same question as the witnesses. Are there, are there prophets and others from the Book of Mormon that you'd particularly like to sit down with and just hear and for whatever reason talk to them? I'm sure everyone you'd like to, but are there ones that are just kind of tender for you? 
Well, uh, I would, I would like to speak with all of them. That's true. I would, uh, I'd like to speak with Moroni, who put all of this together at the end, and and saw his civilization coming to an end spiritually, and how that had to weigh on him, and and what it was to summarize all of these great teachings and how he did that. I would, I would love to talk to him about that. I'd love to talk to him, Marone. I think everybody would in the battles that he was in and how he felt the Lord's hand in those battles. I'd love to, uh, I'd love to talk to the Nephi. I'd like to speak with the first Nephi, but the later Nephi also, who the Lord said, uh, Whatever you say, it will happen, because I know you won't do anything contrary to my will. I thought, wow, what confidence the Lord had in him that he said, I will tell you in advance that anything you say, I will do, because I know you will not do anything contrary to my will. I'd like to talk to a man like that. I'm really touched by your answer. I'm really touched by Moroni and what it would be like to live his life. And um, that would be a wonderful conversation. Yes, it would. I hope you have those conversations. I hope we do. And I have to think that what you and others that have worked with you to put this book together, those on the other side, the witnesses and the prophets in the Book of Mormon are aware of this. And it, um, I did a podcast last night with a, a young man who's um, great, uncle had died in World War II, um, and he just felt impressed to tell this man's story that had no posterity and was an LDS fighter pilot and died. And I just thought of how wonderful it is that that story's been told, and I love the way you bring um, the Book of Mormon to life. And that's a pretty touching answer about Moroni, Elder Callister. Well, thank you. You know, we, unfortunately, we live in a day where Many people denigrate our heroes. You know, I want to erase pictures of George Washington or eliminate the name of Thomas Jefferson from schools. Or, And we need heroes, valid heroes. And none of these men were perfect. But the Lord saw the goodness in them and used them. And I've just been reading about Paul, you know, and here Paul's persecuting the saints and he's holding the garment while they're stoning Stephen. And then finally the angel comes to him on the road to Damascus and says, go to Ananias. And then the Lord goes to Ananias. And basically Ananias says, well, uh, this guy's coming to me. Do you know who this guy is? This guy, you know, persecuted the saints and whatever. And then the Lord says, but he's a chosen vessel. I saw the good in him. I see the best in him. And the Lord always sees the good and the best in people, which was a great lesson to me that we ought to try and find the good and the best in the people and not focus on the flaws, which unfortunately has become a, yeah. uh, a, a pattern today by many. I'm reminded of a book I read, Book of Mormon Heroes, um, and it just different, I can't, you know, different church leaders took one prophet from the Book of Mormon and talked about why that that prophet or that leader was a hero. So I'm thinking of along the same lines as you're talking about Moroni. 
That was a good recall. I, I remember that book now that you've I mentioned it. I don't know if it. you wrote in that book or... <laughs> no, no, I did not. I did not. But that's one of been my favorite books. Yeah. Other doctrine or any thoughts more on the beautiful doctrine that's been restored through the Book of Mormon that's helpful for our members? Well, I think it would be hard to get a better sermon on the doctrine of Christ than you get in 2 Nephi 31 and 2 Nephi 32. It spells out clearly that the doctrine of Christ is faith, repentance, baptism, receiving the Holy Ghost, enduring to the end. And by enduring to the end, it talks about feasting upon the words of Christ and following them. I think that's a beautiful sermon on the doctrine of Christ. Um, so I think those are the ones that at least come to my mind at this time. I'm sure as soon as you turn that off, five others will come to my mind. <laughs> I know they will, and they'll come to my mind too. But I love I love that, and I love that sermon, the sec end of Second Nephi. That's always been really touching for me. I love Nephi where he gets kind of vulnerable, and he says, well, I can't remember the words, but he's just kind of open. that It's hard sometimes, and I remember talking with the YSAs, and he kind of went first person and was real honest. And yes. I thought that was really helpful, especially for the YSAs that need a leader that they kind of recognize as human and just still a prophet and still pointing in the right direction, but kind of, but then he transitioned, says, nevertheless, I, and I know in whom I have trusted. Any thoughts about that story? That is a beautiful sermon. Uh, it's like he's looking at all of his weaknesses yeah. for a few moments, and then he kind of says, but, but why am I doing this? <laughs> I should rejoice. I should rejoice because I have a testimony of the Savior, and I know that he can lift me above all of this. And I think that's the hopeful, helpful and hopeful message of the Book of Mormon is that no matter where we are in our stage in life, you know, even if we're, uh, you know, Almer, the sons of Mosiah, who called themselves the vilest of sinners, the vilest of sinners, that's pretty vile, or the most lost of all mankind, that the Lord says, you can still be a good cheer. You know, I, I can transform your life. You're still eligible for exaltation if you'll just return to me. And that's one of the beautiful teachings of the Book of Mormon. No matter where we are in our stage of life, it gives us the hope and promise that through the Savior's atonement, we can turn to Him, and we can be exalted, and we can become all we want to be and have a fullness of joy. That's the great message of the Book of Mormon. Um, I'd like to talk about another book that really helped me when I was a YSA bishop, and we may come back to the book we've been talking about, but as I met with the YSAs, and obviously through your service, you know this group really well, but they were working through stuff, repentance-related stuff, and I gradually focused in on your book, The Infant Atonement, and Chapter 17 in particular. I love what you named this chapter, The Blessing of Repentance, um, and it was so helpful. It was such a positive chapter for the YSAs as they worked through um, challenges, and not just the YSAs, all of us do, so I don't want to just say it's that generation that needs to read that chapter. Do you just want to share any, you know, this is kind of off the cuff, and it's a book It's a book prior to this book or two, any thoughts about that, the doctrine behind the, the blessing of repentance? Well, it is um, certainly one of the gifts of the atonement of Jesus Christ is the privilege to repent, and I think a lot of people look at it as a negative concept. 
But I think it may be the most beautiful concept known to man. That someone is saying to us, no matter where you are in life, I'll give you a chance to change. I'll, I'll, I'm willing to forgive you. I'm willing to add to whatever your needs are in life and help you achieve anything you want to achieve. Repentance isn't just overcoming negative things. Repentance is seeking the Lord's help to be a better person by helping us be more humble or helping us be a better teacher or a better speaker or more considerate of other people. It works every direction to uh, improve us. And its sole purpose, I think, is ultimately to make us happy. That's the sole purpose of repentance, is to make us happy. And if people understood that, they would, you know, shout with both hands up above their heads, hurrah for, not Israel, hurrah for the Savior, hurrah for the Savior, that he made this possible for us. I love that, and I love it being so positive. And I certainly came to see that and the lifting of the burden. And I think, I sort of think the Savior loves forgiving. He's already paid the price, and I think he's grateful when someone takes advantage of this great gift. And I've thought of the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep and wondering if that's trying to help us understand how the Savior feels about us when we take advantage of this wonderful gift. We're kind of coming to the end, Elder Callister. Any other thoughts you'd like to share either on the Book of Mormon or any, any message you'd like to give just to, especially if this is a younger crowd? Um, you are the younger crowd, the listeners out there. Any things you'd like to share in closing? Well, I would, you know, the Lord told us by simple and small things, great things come to pass. And lots of times I think youth want some significant step or vision or whatever in their life to change their course. But to me, it is, it is basically the simple things that strengthen us and build our faith. And I remember when I was about 16 years of age and I was in a seminary class and they sang the song, Here you left your room this morning, did you think to pray? And I thought, no, I didn't pray this morning. I didn't pray yesterday morning. I prayed at night, but not in the morning. But the Spirit worked on me and I realized that I needed to say morning prayers. It was just a significant way to start the day. For me, my morning prayer is more important if that's appropriate to say that my evening prayer, the evening prayer, the day's done. You can't change it. The True. morning prayer, you True. set the tone and pace and attitude for the day. That if someone will start their day with morning prayer, and they really will take time to read the scriptures, to start the day, it will get them headed on the right path and at the right speed that can help sustain them during that day. And uh, remember the story, you may remember the story of the axeman who had a contest chopping down trees. And the one bigger man went out there and he just cut those trees all day long. And the smaller guy every hour would go over somewhere in the bushes for 10 minutes and come back. And finally, when it was all over, the bigger man thought he clearly must have won, but found out he'd lost. And he asked the younger man, what were you, what were you doing over in those bushes? He said, I was sharpening my axe. 
Well, when we read the scriptures morning and say our prayers in the morning, we're sharpening our axe that makes us more effective the rest of the day. And sometimes we think we don't have time to read the scriptures. We're so busy. The truth is we don't have time not to read the scriptures and not to say our prayers. And if people would do those two simple things and uh, to start the day and to end the day with prayer, it'll go a significant way towards helping them make good and right choices. Thank you, Elder Callister, for being on the podcast. And it's been, we started with prayer and we prayed there'll be a good spirit here. And we pray that as you're listening, that you will, your testimony of the Book of Mormon will increase. It will help you come closer to Christ. And those of you that are kind of questioning truthfulness of the church, I, I add my testimony to Elder Callister about the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon and a great evidence of the prophet Joseph Smith and the restoration of the church. It's been one of my anchors through my life in the church. And and just any other closing thoughts, Elder Callister, and I'll let you have the last word, and then we'll sign off. Well, thank you for this opportunity. And uh, I would just like to say that I do have a, a witness of the Book of Mormon, uh, intellectually, but more importantly, spiritually. And when I was 15 or 16 reading the Book of Mormon for the first time, now many people read it earlier, but it was the first time I read it. I read the story of the 2000 sons of Helaman. Every young man has to love that story. And as I did, it came to me just a strong spiritual impression. I know I didn't just think of it on my own, but it just came into my mind and said, that story's true. And for a 16-year-old boy, that was my first really significant witness to me that this was the Word of God. And I think the Lord works in subtle ways. And most of the time, my witness comes just as I read, I, I feel a peace. Or I feel a desire to be a better person. Or I have an enlightenment of some new truth I didn't know before. And those are all valuable witnesses from the Spirit that I hope we won't dismiss as we read the Book of Mormon and always be looking for something more, when all the time the Spirit is witnessing to us in multiple and simple but real ways. Thank you, Elder Callister, and thank our listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler.